Peter to hear a conversation on a mid-year outlook with our co-CIOs, Steve Walk and Leslie Marks. We talk all about where they think the equity and fixed income markets are headed and why. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with our two co-CIOs, Steve Walk and Leslie Marks. Um, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Matt. Thanks. Uh, we're uh, recording this just after the publication of uh, sort of your mid-year outlook uh, in what we uh, call an updated blue book, uh, which you can find on our website. Steve, I thought that I'd start with you because the big story of the year is clearly inflation. And uh, when we started the year, we did expect inflation to moderate from peak levels, but it appears to be stickier than expected. Do you expect this to continue for the back half of the year? Uh, largely we do, Matt. I mean, I think the, the ideas about inflation coming down, I mean, that's clearly in the wind now. We've seen a peak in inflation in most uh, you know, uh, developed economies over the last six months, give or take. Um, Japan being a more recent example where we may have seen a peak in inflation. Right. And ultimately, uh, we believe that if you look at the year-over-year numbers, just mathematically, you're likely to see inflation continue to fall. But it's been uneven. It's been it's been distributed a little bit around within inflation, where you see in the timing of the different changes, moving from high inflation rates to more moderate, or even in fact, in some cases, deflation rates internally. So we certainly have seen um, quite a bit of variance. And even if you look at, for example, the last month, we had headline CPI in the U.S. up 0.4. We had the core up 0.1. Right. And uh, the big the big delta on that comes from energy pricing, which was down on the month. But even within, we saw some good sectors up smartly, and we saw some of the services sectors, which are remaining strong uh, and not really abating uh, yet in the context of the shifts in demand over the last one to two years we've seen as economies reopened, consumers started to spend money, including pandemic-era savings that they had built up. So there's been some resilience to inflation here. Clearly, the Fed's reflected on that. Uh, We see in their statement of economic projections just last week that their measure of inflation, the core PCE deflator, they're actually forecasting it to be a little bit higher toward year end than what they had previously projected. So moving from 3.6 to 3.9% in their projection. So again, there is this context of sticky inflation. It's mainly coming from the services side uh, at this point. And in particular, the rent component in the calculation of of core CPI has been where the stickiness has really lasted. And when we take a look at that now in a real-time perspective, in fact, what we do see in the market for rents in the U.S. in particular is that there is a shift going on. And in more real-time, rather than the lagged impact in the CPI calculation, in real-time, rents have been coming down. Uh, or have been leveling off much more than we see in that calculation. So when you add it all up, Matt, there's a a fairly mixed picture on inflation, but we do know that the economy has been stronger than expected. Consumers have been stronger than expected. And that is keeping inflation higher than the Fed wants here. So we do expect that to be a little bit sticky in the second half of the year. 
That's great. Maybe uh, you referenced the Fed uh, in that response. Maybe we turn to the Fed uh, more directly. Uh, and you even referenced the most recent meeting uh, where they renewed their economic projections. Uh, included in that is the dot plot that's widely uh, discussed. Um, and it showed uh, an extra 50 basis points uh, hiking by the end of the year. We saw the Bank of Canada uh, go and hike again after a, a pause. So it seems like there's renewed hawkishness from, from central banks. Do you believe, I guess, that the Fed is actually going to get to uh, the extra 50 basis points and that the central banks uh, are in a more hawkish uh, part of the cycle now? Well, I mean, they were clearly in a hawkish cycle last year, Matt. We, we had a, a huge uh, move in many central bank policy rates over 2022, which, of course, uh, had a, did a number on the bond market and on equity market because there was not much of this discounted into uh, 2022, 2023 as we came into last year. So this, this, this has been a, a, a huge change in the yield curve. When you look at the Fed and the way it's been uh, projected in the markets over the last uh, few months, there's been some variance there, quite a bit actually, uh, pricing in and out different types of uh, rate hikes in the near term, rate cuts in the second half of the year. So a lot of variance on the front end of the yield curve around Fed pricing. What's the Fed actually doing? What are they saying? I mean, they were saying last year we were behind the curve on inflation. We need to hike very quickly to catch up. As we came into 2023, the estimates were in the market, and the Fed has been living up to these, is that they would slow the pace of rate hikes in the first half of the year, and then probably start to take a wait-and-see approach. Hmm. The Fed started to signal that. But what they're saying today, and I just I made a comment a minute ago about core CPI being, in their estimate, likely ending the year higher than they previously expected. On the flip side of that, un- the unemployment rate, is they're saying in their, in their SEP projections, is that it might be a little bit lower than they previously expected. So the labor market has remained strong, and this is ultimately then something that the Fed is concerned with in the context of how it feeds through to structural inflation or, or really sticky inflation through, through uh, labor markets. So that's, I think, the key focus for the Fed here uh, in the back half of the year. And so what we have seen then is over the last few months, the market's projection of rate cuts from the Fed, which there was as many as three priced in right. earlier this year into the second part of 2023, the market has now depriced those and is actually reflecting a small increase in the policy rate. The Fed seems uh, to be fairly clear in its messaging after last week that they are going to hike in July. Uh, so we expect they'll do 25 basis points in July at the meeting. Uh, we'll see if we get another 25 uh, later in the quarter, perhaps September, but uh, that remains to be seen given how the data will flow in through the next few months. And uh, just to turn more specifically to the Bank of Canada, uh, they uh, recently hiked after after pausing. Are you expecting this to be uh, the first of uh, several hikes, or, or where do you think Bank of Canada goes from here? I think the Bank of Canada is uh, you know is really having to go completely data dependent here. Uh, there's there's certainly some strength in the Canadian economy, uh, perhaps beyond expected, uh, particularly when it comes to. Uh, some areas of consumption, but housing in particular being kind of a very strong area um, in in uh, terms of house price moves in the last few months and over the last year, about I think we're up about one point four percent nationally in house pricing. So right. there has certainly been strength in some aspects of consumption, but we have a very much more rate sensitive economy here in Canada as compared to U.S. households, 
uh, in particular around uh, when it comes to rate sensitivity and mortgages. So I think the Bank of Canada is, is walking a fine line here between the, the strength the economy has been showing, but with the potential to really upset the, uh, the housing market uh, in, in, in what they've done with policy rates in 2022 and then following through with more hikes uh, here. So I, I expect they're going to be very data dependent, Matt. And uh, I, would, I would not be surprised at all if uh, the data starts to turn a little softer that they, they go right back to pause. Great. Uh, Leslie, let's turn to you to talk a little bit about uh, the economy as a whole and specifically the, the consumer. Uh, we know in North America, it's a uh, consumer-led economy. Uh, Steve just talked to us about uh, the profound uh, rise in interest rates and then potentially some more in the back half of the year. Can the consumers continue to be resilient uh, given those uh, circumstances? Thank you for the question, Matt, and for having us here today. Um, I think I think it's, it's a really important question the consumer represents about 70% of the U.S. economy and about 55% of the Canadian economy. So it is key that we focus in on uh, the consumer. And like, like many metrics this year, it's been a real surprise to see how resilient the consumer has been. Um, we think that the strength in the consumer has really come from the labor market mm. and Labor demand for labor has obviously been very tight. When you look at unemployment uh, data, uh, you can see that we're basically at record lows in unemployment, both here in Canada and in the United States. And so the key is, as long as people are continuing to work, um, they can continue to consume. Now, if you double click a little bit into consumer spending and in what we've seen, um, there are some interesting trends that would give me a little bit of pause when I think about the outlook for the consumer for the second half of the year. The first one is looking at consumer goods, where spending has actually flattened to almost 0% growth year over year. So a lot of the consumption that we had of goods during the pandemic, um, as you would expect, has pulled forward demand from the future. So sure. we've seen that go to zero. The next potential could be negative uh, year over year on goods, but where we haven't seen that yet, and again, this is because people are working, uh, wage growth is quite high. So when people have jobs and they feel like they're making more money, um, they have a willingness or a propensity to spend. So where people have been spending their money is actually on the services side. And in many cases for two to three years, those have been areas that people haven't been able to spend. And so I found it interesting to see some of the trends in services. Um, and one news story that caught my attention last week was a story on the BBC about Swedish inflation, which they described as having the Beyonce effect. Have you heard okay. about this? Yeah, I haven't, no. <laughs> so this is kind of a crazy news story. And um, it basically talks about how um, the the number of people attracted to the Swedish economy to come and see Beyonce in Sweden, and that this has driven tourism in in the country by concert goers. And so you hear wow. and see stories like that <laughs> from reputable news sources, and it just it sort of makes you think. And 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 here right now, I mean the the other concert that I think everyone's in a frenzy about is Taylor Swift right now. I don't think you can get Taylor Swift tickets for less than twelve hundred dollars in the resale market. So 
you know, you hear stories like that and, and you say, like, how long can that go on for? Sure. People are spending way beyond um, the level of inflation today, what they would have spent five years ago for some of these experiences, if, if you will. But in the short term, I think services continue to drive consumer spending and consumer spending will be more resilient than we would expect for the rest of the year with goods consumption being a bit of an offsetting or tempering effect to uh, consumer spending growth. COVID revenge spending is alive and well, uh, despite to- uh, In some areas, right? In some People areas, aren't, that's right. aren't buying Peloton bikes, but they are certainly traveling and buying concert tickets. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> I, I'll shift now uh, from the consumer to corporations. Um, and we've seen corporate profit, profits hold in reasonably well, and they've been able to pass along uh, a lot of the inflationary costs uh, to uh, to consumers. Do you expect that uh, the corporate profit level is going to uh, be able to hold up throughout the back half of this year? So this is another area that has also been surprisingly resilient uh, year to date. And I'll, I'll sort of paint a picture for you um, around the S&P as, as an example. So earnings uh, for the S&P peaked around $225 in 2022. And this year, the consensus expectation is around $220. So flat to, to slightly down. Um, but the projection for next year is for 10% growth. Now, just thinking, you know, without going stock by stock, company by company, uh, one area that I've been looking at is oil prices, because obviously that impacts energy earnings. And in the first quarter, oil prices were down 20% year over year. And in the second quarter, they're down 32% year over year. So some companies will benefit because energy prices are, are an input and they impact right. their own cost inflation. But obviously, the energy sector is, is negatively impacted. And so when you look at the trajectory for, for earnings this year, it is hard to see uh, that trend continuing hmm. and to think about us getting a 10% bounce off of that number for next year. And, and similar to what we saw on the consumer side with spending and borrowing from the future with goods, consumer goods spending, um, revenue and earnings for the S&P has been very much above trend. If you go back to 2019, um, there was a fairly uh, tight trend line of earnings growth. And all of a sudden you had, you know, the big dip in 2020 and then right. a huge spike, which has been elevated much above that trend line. And we continue to be at this place. So I think it's reasonable to expect that eventually we will come back to trend earnings. Um, Inflation has obviously helped. Companies have been able to pass along price increases and are not fully um, shouldering all of the wage growth that's been required. And so they've actually benefited from inflation and that's obviously grown revenue. And in the first quarter, we saw um, a, a very prudent approach to managing costs, which was, has helped to drive earnings. And those are sh like the, the utilizing costs to drive margins and to grow your earnings is not a sustainable trend. You can do that right. for one, two, three quarters, but it's very difficult to do that over longer periods of time. So all of those factors come together to say that earnings are likely to come back. To, earnings growth is likely to come back to trend. 
and that expectations are probably um, in the second half of this year still too high and potentially next year. That's great, Leslie. Uh, maybe turning to you, Steve, the last time I had both of you uh, on the, the podcast was in response to the regional banking crisis, uh, where we saw several banks uh, fail. The regional banks haven't really hit the press uh, since that sort of time. Uh, I'm curious, is that crisis sort of past us or is there uh, potentially uh, more to come? Well, Matt, I guess I would start with saying that, um, you know, I think maybe after 2008, we all defined what banking crisis. We, we redefined what that meant. Sure. I mean, it's sort of a different <laughs> definition than we'd seen before. And I think when you think about you know U.S. regional banks through any cycle, uh, we have seen a number of banks fail every cycle in the U.S. There's a, there's a lot of banks, thousands of banks in the U.S. There was many more thousands of them if you go back a few decades. And uh, so it's, it's sort of a, a natural part of the process. What was different about this, of course, was that this, we, we did not see a particularly discounted in any way, shape, or form around a crisis-like moment. But mm. what it was, was a deposit flight um, that uh, was driven by effectively um, unrealized capital losses within the bond portfolios held by this bank. So depositors thinking that these banks might become uh, less stable um, over time pulled their money out. Now, that's the, tr- that's the tradition of a liquidity run or a bank run that you, you do see. Um, in this case, you know, it has not become a full-blown banking crisis because the Fed, FDIC, and U.S. Treasury stepped in with some programs immediately in the wake of SVB and Signature Bank's collapse to support depositors. So that has been very effective, Matt, uh, over the last couple of months. Um, the, uh, the, the funding costs that were injected into every, every bank in the U.S. as well as Canadian banks in the wake of that, a lot of that's uh, now uh, retraced back. So the extra spread on bank bonds, for example, uh, the, the cost of raising debt capital to these banks all rose in, immediately in the wake of SVB. And that's all come back down a little bit. With the exception of like lower quality uh, in the capital structure of banks, so think about subordinated or deeply subordinated bank bonds. Right. Those spreads are, are a little bit wider, uh, remain a little bit wider today. So what this is telling us is that the, the immediate solve for a crisis came in, and that's the, the BTFP program that was launched. And that has been taken up. That is actually ongoing, in fact. That program is, is now alive and will be uh, continue to be offered and is being used by the banking system in the U.S. That tells you that there's still a credit crunch happening within the banking system where deposits have become a little bit more scarce uh, over the last couple of months. Um, other types of um, interim lending by uh, by regulators, uh, for example, FDIC facilitates uh, federal home loan bank advances. Those have been rising as well. So, so it hasn't completely gone away, but it's not a crisis. And these these programs are there for this reason, and they are supporting it. But I think there's a you know the the takeaway from it is that what it has done and what it is likely to continue to do is redistribute where credit is available in the U.S. economy. Hmm. Uh, and in particular, we think about regional banks and the roles that they play. Uh, they tend to be local lenders in their community. They tend to be lending disproportionately to small and mid-sized businesses. Uh, they tend to also be uh, uh, lending uh, a more significant proportion of their loan book goes toward commercial real estate. So uh, there's 
a number of areas in the economy that are likely to get pinched a little bit on credit availability over the coming months, and that should continue with the high yield environment. I'll just point out that you know, with the Fed potentially raising rates one or two more times, and with yields having moved a little bit higher in the last month, this is continuing to put pressure right. uh, on uh, those banks as well. So right. ultimately, uh, you know, Matt, the, the crisis is not a crisis, but it is going to have a, a, a bit of a headwind effect on lending and lending standards in the U.S., that's great, Steve. And Leslie, I can recall from our conversation that was exactly your point, which is uh, don't focus so much on the, the regional banks per se, but the overall credit conditions and what that might mean uh, for the economy. I'm curious, do you think that the uh, the credit tightening and the uh, response of the economy based on, on these regional banks, has that come to pass yet or is there more uh, left uh, to, to absorb throughout the back half of this year? Well, I think just building on on Steve's point, I mean, you had sort of a very uh, localized rescue plan for the banks that we all know about. And I don't want to diminish the importance of the decline in some specific regional banks because those shareholders were left with nothing and the absorption from the mergers uh, and rescues could lead to job losses. But I think our, our view is that we didn't view this as systemic. And so taking that premise first and then saying, okay, what will the impact be? Steve started to touch on that, which was related to the availability of credit, um, which is really, I mean, this event happened in March and we haven't even seen the latest quarter um, senior loan officers uh, survey, which will give us a good indication of the impact um, to availability of credit. But our expectation is, and anecdotally, we're seeing signs that availability of credit has declined. And Steve made the comment around deposits being more scarce. So just by virtue of having less availability of deposits, you know there is less availability of uh, credit because that's part of the funding uh, cycle. Um, We also expect that the regulatory environment will be more challenging. Um, I don't know if it was a leak or a hint or what, but there was an article in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago, um, which talked about rumors about a 20% increase in capital requirements for U.S. banks above a certain size. Now, we haven't seen any verification of this uh, regulatory policy, but the article said that the expectation was something was going to come by the end of this month. So maybe we will any day now. And so all of these things, I mean, that is part of the fuel for any economy, which is borrowing, lending, investing, capital, commercial real estate, industrial loans, individual loans. All of those things really provide the fuel for an economy. And I I really believe that at this point in time, three months after this main event, um, it's too soon to say that that impact has been fully borne out in the global economy um, today. So that's another reason why when we think about the outlook for the second half of this year, um, we think it's it's a more challenging environment that the market has moved on from this, but the real world Main Street cannot move on from this. 
Great points. And uh, sort of based on the picture that you've painted uh, in your, your previous comments about uh, corporate, pro- corporate profitability uh, likely to come down, but the consumer still hanging in and being fairly resilient, where does that end up as far as your outlook for uh, equities overall? Well, um, in our mid-year outlook uh, report, we've indicated uh, a slight preference for bonds over equities at this time and with a six-month time horizon. Um, for all of the reasons that we've talked about thus far, but the two, just to summarize, the two primary reasons are that we we do expect that um, the liquidity conditions are changing, and um, this is creating much tighter financial conditions, which will be a headwind for the economy. We also feel that the expectations for earnings are not fully reflecting um, the trajectory of of the economy. And so the economic headwinds will also create an impact on um, the outlook for equities, which is less favorable right now than for bonds. Um, Our our current stand on equities um, overall is summarized by that view versus uh, uh, fixed income, but then drilling into the regional perspective, um, if that's helpful, um, starting with right here at home in, in North America, um, despite the fact that our central banks are out of sync, um, you know, the Bank of Canada resumed tightening at the same time, basically a week apart from the Fed pausing. Um, the economic outlook for Canada and the U.S. is, is fairly similar, uh, but with some nuance. We talked about how the U.S. is a more consumer driven economy, so consumer spending and labor are more important but uh, because of the low unemployment rate and our expectation that that will continue, even if unemployment starts to tick up, we think that the U.S. economy may have some room to outperform here. In, in Canada, um, you look at um, the indebtedness of Canadians and the importance of a central bank that's now moved beyond its skip or pause, whatever you want to call it, um, to tighten, the Bank of Canada is really making um, a very strong case that they want this economy to slow down from where it is here today. They don't like what they're seeing in the data. Um, Steve talked about that view on, you know, is is this kind of like a one and done increase here? And, And, you know, I think if they were going to stop at 20, if they were only going to do 25 basis points, they probably wouldn't have bothered um, or they want people to think that there is, is more to come. Right. So there, there's a whole sort of ecosystem around um, the views on um, the Bank of Canada and the impact that that will have on Canadian housing, which is so important uh, to our economy. Now, to counter that, um, and actually, maybe maybe the last point I should make on on Canada is related to to oil prices. And um, I, I already talked about the year over year delta with with energy oil specifically. Um, Canadian energy companies still make a lot of money at, at current prices, but on a year over year basis, um, that uh, pre- presents some headwinds for the economy. And there are secondary and tertiary uh, uh, impacts of the energy sector that go beyond just um, the energy sector per per se in the Canadian economy. Um, But now, you know, I've talked a little bit about housing. Um, One thing that we haven't talked about yet is the role of immigration in Canada. Last week, we hit um, a very significant milestone in this country where our population surpassed 
uh, 40 million people. Um, I think most people have seen <clears throat> the um, statistic of a million new uh, Canadians over the last year have entered our market. And we know that that is fueling demand for everything in this country. But the thing that people notice the most is the demand for housing. And so Canada is, you know, this is a big part of the economic policy of our government to bring in uh, a younger working population in order to increase productivity and to grow uh, GDP. Unfortunately, um, to this point, that hasn't been the case. The GDP per capita in Canada has basically been flat for 10 years. But the thinking would be um, over the next few years, we would start to see that that increase with the change in composition of the population. Um, so, you know, that creates sort of an interesting uh, part of the um, the landscape when you're thinking about the uh, Canadian economy, for sure. In, in Asia, um, Japan has definitely become more interesting um, as GDP is really starting to grow after a prolonged 30-year slump. Um, GDP growth will have, a, there will be a multiplier effect on earnings growth and wage growth and tax income for the government. So right. there are a whole bunch of positive um, events that happen as a result of hitting uh, GDP growth from uh, such a prolonged period of no growth. And emerging markets in Asia are also benefiting from uh, the China reopening and the desire to diversify manufacturing uh, across the region away from China. So we think there is a, there are attractive opportunities in um, Asia overall. <clears throat> but offsetting that would be the outlook for Europe, which has definitely benefited from the moderation in commodity prices like natural gas. But inflation is still running too hot in the region and so monetary policy is likely to be tighter, um, even compared with North America and, and for longer. And so we think that um, equities in, in Europe have had a, a phenomenal run, but are likely to have a, a pause here. And, and that would be sort of at the expense of some of the Asian uh, equity markets, Japan in, in particular, which although it's also had a good run here, it's, it's been very much an unloved and ignored market for right. a very long time. And so there's probably more room uh, to go uh, there. Um, and then the last thing I'll say related to emerging markets, and I'll, I'll focus my comments on China. Um, I think we, we would all agree that China's reopening has been a bit underwhelming. And, and even, of course, <laughs> the Bank of China, the People's Bank of China agrees with that because they've just right. come out with some stimulative policy um, to try and stimulate the the economy. There, there really is a bit of a a view on on consumer confidence in in China and people not feeling confident yet enough to spend and so the consumer is 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 a big factor and a big headwind which is very different than in in North America um, but you know I think with 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 more um, stimulative policy and um, the geopolitical risk you know cannot be ignored but to bring us to today's headlines it, it's been uh, I think a good positive step to see um, Secretary of State, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in China, having productive conversations with President Xi Jinping, and both of them feeling that the meetings were positive. So China is a, a stock market that um, people have taken a step away from because of the disappointing uh, reopening trend. But there could be other factors that could fuel that market uh, going forward. Overall, we don't have a lot of conviction around what that looks like. 
that, that's where the geopolitical risks come into play. And so we're neutral on, on emerging markets. So all this to summarize and say that um, because the consumer piece is so important in the United States and the makeup of the stock market in, in the U.S., out of all the equity markets today, this is our uh, favored equity market from a geographic relative allocation view. That's great, Leslie. Maybe just one follow-up on the U.S. market. Um, Year-to-date, we've seen the leadership of that market be quite narrow, Uh, really a handful of names driving the market uh, higher. Uh, In the back half of the year, are you expecting that to broaden out, or do you still expect uh, that market to advance to be led by a narrow group of companies? So I I think for that market to continue to move higher, we do need to see a broadening out of um, the S&P 493 stocks that have not (laughs) been um, participating to the same extent as that um, group of seven. And uh, I think that that is an important differentiator. You've got a market that's highly concentrated. So there is potential um, because of the valuation differential between that top seven stocks, which trade over 30 times earnings, and, and the rest of the, the market where there is potential. And it's hard to say that those stocks are overvalued in the context of the greater uh, market. So the, so the S&P is an important market to look at, not in aggregate when you look at multiples, because, of course, it's going to look expensive. But when you break it down between those two groups, 493 and 7, you're going to have a different view around valuation around U.S. equities. That's great. Uh, Steve, turning to you, uh, Leslie had uh, outlined that um, at the highest level, uh, favoring bonds over equities, maybe expand a little bit on on what's uh, leading to the upside for bonds and then also get into some of the details uh, as you uh, go into the various bond types. Sure, Matt. Yeah, we think when you talk about upside for bonds, I think we're just after last year, we're just satisfied with coupon carry. You know, sure. Bonds, aren't we? <laughs> um, that would be nice. So we have some healthy coupons to invest in today. And I guess that's the first point about thinking about bonds in our in our asset mix discussion here. Um, we talked a little bit about the Fed and the Bank of Canada and the outlook for rate hikes slowing down quite a bit, even if there are one or two more. Some of that's already priced into the curve. And as we said, even uh, at the beginning of the fourth quarter last year, we were, we'd become positive on areas of the bond market because of how much was already priced into the curve in terms of future rate hikes at that time. We've realized many of those hikes today. So bond yields, in fact, having moved up recently, are in and around the same area they were at two other points in the last six months. So we think this is still a good place to own bonds when, from a relative value perspective against many of the risks that Leslie just painted for us in the, in the corporate earnings side and, and, uh, and, and ultimately um, you know, the, the, the volatility that we've seen in markets overall. Uh, where this could go, we think that in the balance of equities and bonds, we have a, a little bit of, uh, uh, we favor bonds just a little bit here. The context for that is that bonds will perform as a ballast for the portfolio if things do get choppy for the economy and for markets. Now, this is something that, of course, last year didn't prove. Last year with the rate hike cycle uh, hitting both equities and bonds, in most part for negative returns in, in most uh, areas of investing outside of cash, you didn't see that type of response. But mm. uh, as we go into the traditional sort of downturns, if we have those moments, if we have an economy that goes into recession, there's a structural reason why bonds will tend to outperform and help balance a portfolio's risks at a time like that. We expect that would be the case, again, particularly with these higher yields to invest in today. So we do have areas of the bond market that we like. Uh, we do We do still like 
um, the, the shorter end of the yield curve today. We like, um, and that, uh, that you're looking at yields, uh, in particular for investment grade corporates, an area that we tend to be just a little bit overweight here. Um, notwithstanding the tighter spreads, we think that's a good value area to hold in your portfolio um, over the coming uh, quarters. Um, you're in many cases getting five, six percent yields from that area of the market with very, very low volatility, either from interest rates or uh, bonds credit spreads. Uh, when it comes to other areas, the fixed income market, we've been taking risk lower. We've been reducing okay. our exposure to some areas of credit, uh, such as uh, high yield bonds and uh, leveraged loans as examples of that. Um, well, you know, we've seen those uh, areas be quite resilient. In fact, year to date, we've seen spreads narrow in those markets. And, you know, talking uh, from the bond market point of view, a little bit about what Leslie was saying from the equity side, we don't see a lot of risk priced in there. In some cases, it's warranted. Some areas of the high yield bond market are actually structurally better than they were in other cycles. So higher quality or, or better fundamentals on some high yield bond issues. But notwithstanding that, we would expect that there might be some more spread volatility uh, to come in those areas of the market with them being a little bit more tightly priced now. So we have year over year or last couple of quarters been reducing our exposure to high yield bonds gradually and selectively. Uh, from the loan side, uh, we, we think that there's um, between high yield bonds and loan, there's, there's a little bit more uh, of a positive opinion uh, for us right now on the high yield, on areas of the high yield bond market. So okay. when we think about the trade-off between uh, loans and high yield bonds, we tend to favor within that higher credit risk basket, uh, the high yield bond side today. Some areas of EM debt are looking attractive to us. Uh, many EM countries had, uh, had experienced the inflation cycle a little bit earlier than we did here in North America. And their central banks had to get in front of that with rate hikes again a little bit earlier than we saw from the Bank of Canada and the Fed last year. So as a result, right. they've passed, uh, they've gone through the peak in their inflation. They're starting to bring those uh, policy rates down. We think that's supportive for, um, for those markets. And we do like uh, certain countries within the EM space. For example, Brazil is one that we like, uh, we like recently. So. When you when you add it all up, Matt, you know we have a, we have a, I guess less risk in our portfolio today in the context of where we're taking credit risk, but we do we do prefer high quality credit as a place that you can uh, continue to clip a nice coupon here with those sort of five to six percent yields we talked about, and our overall duration is it's it's we have varied it a little bit here through the first half of the year. I'll just uh, mention that you know with some of the comments that Leslie and I've already made about which central banks are still hiking and which might be pausing, perhaps. Uh, you know, most of our duration that we've held has been North American-based, okay. uh, as you'd expect, in our mainly Canadian-based portfolios. But when we've taken short positions on uh, yield curves, they tend to have been outside of North America. So we've had short positions in, on the Japanese curve and in certain European curves where we expected uh, the central bank policies to impact those uh, those bond yields and push them a little bit higher. Um, so again, with what we've seen priced into North America for the past six to nine months, we've been okay holding some duration here in Canada and the US. So net of all of that, we have a slightly short duration, but it's focused outside, that short is focused outside of Canada. 
Thanks, Steve. Uh, maybe we'll conclude with just one final question to, to both of you. As the year progresses, I guess what are the known unknowns that you'll be uh, looking for to help crystallize your outlook and and uh, and and what's uh, what what are you focused in on? Maybe we'll start with you, Leslie. Well, the known unknowns, you know, these are really things that we don't know. <laughs> so, um, I, I would say one thing that is giving me some pause is I'm I'm looking at volatility. And um, volatility is very low right now, and it has never been this low since before the pandemic. And so if there was something that came about that was unexpected and unknown, um, I think the market could have a very violent reaction to that, which is, which is what has happened in, in history when volatility is very low. It means that there is very little risk priced into risky assets, and so the market will adjust uh, very quickly. And I guess the second thing I'll say on this topic is just thinking about what we, you know, what we don't know from the war in Ukraine. I don't think right. anyone would have expected um, us to be where we are today uh, in that war that we would, you know, 15 months in still be um, seeing what we're seeing in that part of the world. And so it makes one feel very uncomfortable about what the potential resolution could be uh, in this uh, war. And so I would say for us that, you know, is not only very sad and tragic um, for society, um, it, we are right to be fearful on what the outcome could look like for um, this war. That's great. Steve? I guess um, if I had to sum up the what I'm thinking about in the the known unknowns would be uh, the balance sheet. Um, mm -hmm. So when I think about uh, where we are, what we've been through in the last few years, uh, we're we're in an interesting, we're approaching an interesting crossroads. I think. I mean, we had uh, we talked a little bit about the pandemic era savings uh, that were being spent or have been spent on goods and services. We're really drawing those savings down fairly quickly and supportive, I think, current levels of consumption. So again, the balance sheet is starting to be depleted of that sort of well right. of, of demand that we've been drawing from. And then I take a look over at the liability side and what we see is we're starting to see some rising delinquencies, particularly in consumer credit around uh, traditional spaces like credit cards mm -hmm. and auto loans. Now, these delinquencies are, are still extremely low. But there, we're back to sort of the 2019, 2018 type area. In other words, we've we've pulled our, those delinquencies up very recently in the last few months. They've they've come up from the extremely low levels we were running during the the pandemic when things like loan forbearance and income replacement were still flowing through to uh, consumers and businesses. So when I think about the known unknowns, um, it's how rapidly are we going to see those delinquencies rise? How broad-based is it going to become and how quickly uh, are we going to start to see those delinquencies turn into defaults? Um, and, you know, we don't see a lot of defaults here yet, but what you know, I think we're going to expect to see over the next 6 to 12 months is that there will be conversion of those delinquencies to defaults. and That will become another headwind for balance sheets and valuation. And you know, one area we are starting to see this, Matt, which is you know, I think what I'd paint as a known unknown here is what is the depth of, uh, of discounting we're going to see in certain areas of commercial real estate 
Mm-hmm. Uh, probably many uh, people listening have read the, a few articles on office buildings in particular and certain centers in the U.S. having uh, received, uh, have, having gone into uh, receivership and been right. and received really no bids or, or extremely low bids or valuation for these properties, some of them, you know, very, very uh, much class A buildings. To me, this is, uh, uh, there's a wave of this that's still coming through in terms of revaluing property. Again, another balance sheet impact. So mm. those are the things that I'm thinking about. Well, uh, thank you very much, Leslie, Steve. I appreciate you spending time and walking through the mid-year outlook. Uh, As I said at the beginning, you can find it on our website. I encourage you to download it, read through, and uh, and get a little bit more details on uh, on what we've just discussed. So, Steve, Leslie, thanks again. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us once again, Matt. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 